You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, so if you don't know, I have three shows currently running on Broadway with my name on it right now. I got Once on this Island, I've got Play That Goes Wrong, and I've got Kinky Boots. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, go see one of my shows. It's that easy. Once on this Island, Kinky Boots, or The Play That Goes Wrong, now running on Broadway. Check them out. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. This is the Producer's Perspective Podcast. I am Ken Davenport. Welcome, everyone. I'm super fortunate to have on my podcast today the Tony Award-winning author, Lisa Crone. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. So Lisa won two Tonys for her book and, and lyrics to Fun Home. She was also nominated as an actress for her own play. So let's start with this one. Why plays? Why not write something else? What drew you to write for the theater? Well, I was not going to be a writer at all. That was, I, I definitely did not see that coming. I didn't really write anything. And when I did write, I, you know, just the little bits that as, you know, a kid in school or whatever I wrote, I was a little bit horrified by my writing. <laughs> but so I, you know, I came into it sort of backwards. I mean, I was drawn, first of all, to tell stories my family was, my parents were both great anecdote tellers, my whole family. And that was something that we really, I mean, the majority of family conversation was anecdotes like that. And, you know, starting from when I was probably like in third or fourth grade or something, I had this interest in figuring out how to be funny. And which I quickly understood was a little bit different for girls than it was for boys. And I was interested in how to tell a funny story. But I didn't know anything about theater. I didn't go, we didn't go to the theater. I didn't see a play till I was 16 years old. It really wasn't on my, we listened to cast albums. We listened to Broadway cast albums, but I didn't really know anything about it. And, but I, you know, I feel like it's a vocation. It calls you. And in my Jewish youth group, we did Purim plays and we, we had like sometimes games that involved improv. And I really loved doing that. I really, there was something about performing that I was, that, it, it lit up the world for me. You know, it, it made things just more interesting to be, to have that kind of whatever that electrical current is that goes along with connecting with an audience. So it's a long story, but I ended up, I mean, I, you know, I feel like it's theater's a vocation. It chooses you. And I just sort of found, you know, kept stepping toward it in various weird ways. Once I was a theater major in college, I was told outright that there wasn't really a place for me in theater. As I like to say in shorthand, not thin enough, not pretty enough, not straight enough. Because this is when you were pursuing an acting career. Well, I was, I don't even think I thought about a career. I was at a small Midwestern college. I mean, I, I couldn't even get cast. You know, I was told outright by the theater professor that I obviously couldn't play I hadn't been, you know, there was this thing that happens. I don't know if it still happens in small Midwestern, like a liberal arts college theater department, where if you don't get cast, we, we would go in and ask why we didn't get cast. And what I was told was it was because 
I this was just said like obviously well you obviously couldn't play this role because you know you don't convey any sexuality on stage. What's a, what is amazing is that someone would actually say these things to an eighteen year old girl. Yeah. You know, like why would you do that? Also, you know, later I thought perhaps my sexuality was not recognizable to you. But you know, for every sort of avenue that was closed, there was something that opened, some avenue that opened. And I was was sort of scared of everything. I was really really shy, but I was sort of when I was in high school, I guess, I started to have this feeling that I could get to the end of my life and be like, wow, I didn't live my life because I was afraid and that I would be horrified. And so if I sort of made a rule for myself that if a door opened, that I needed to step through it, even if I was scared. And that took me in a lot of interesting places. And It's um, a very hard thing for an 18-year-old person to decide to do, especially when everyone's saying, by the way... This is probably not going to work. I guess so. I mean, you know, it's not like anything I did was actually so scary, you know, so I don't want to congratulate myself really about it. It's not like I, I mean, I know a lot of people who do really scary things. It's not like I made any choices that were actually dangerous in any way. And I had a very supportive family and that was, that made, that was extremely helpful. They weren't pressuring me to do anything other than what I was doing. And that was, that was really awesome. But anyway, I ended up it. At the Wild Cafe, this lesbian theater collective, I had been drawn there by seeing a show by these, this company, the Split Bridges Company, Peggy Shaw, Lois Weaver, Deb Margolin, all of whom are still writing. Peggy and Lois had a show in the Under the Radar Festival this past season. Deb Margolin's still writing. I just read a recent play of her called Turquoise, which somebody needs to produce. Somebody produces play Turquoise. It is astonishingly beautiful play. And I saw their work when I was first in New York. I was 24, 25 years old. And Anything I thought I knew about theater, which was virtually nothing, but I thought was a lot. I mean, it, it it just cracked the world open. It just cracked the world open in terms of what I thought theater could be, how it could make me feel, and what I thought it was for. I was on a panel a couple of days ago with the playwright Monet Hurst-Mendoza, who was talking about seeing angels in America for the first time and how seeing that she thought that plays had, I'm sort of paraphrasing her here, but she thought that plays had to be, I guess she thought they had to be more literal, you know? And when the angel comes in, she was like, oh, 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 that's a play, that's a play, you know? And she's this wonderful, inventive playwright now. And certainly that's the kind of thing that happened to me. I mean, it just revolutionized my mind and the rest of my life. So they were working from this theater collective, this lesbian theater collective in the East Village, and I just started to go there. It still exists, the Wow Cafe on East 4th Street. It's open to any woman who wants to go there. You, you, I don't know if it's still organized exactly the same way, but when I was there, you would just go. There was a staff meeting every Tuesday night, and you'd go to a staff meeting, and then you'd do support work on somebody else's show. And then at the beginning of the year in the summer, there'd be a retreat, and you'd say if you wanted a show, and then you'd be given a time slot to do a show. The fact is that if you give theater makers resources and if you don't try to fix them, the amount of good work you will get will be much higher than it is if you meet out these resources to only the people who you deem worthy and then you help them or fix them. That has been my experience. What was your first thing that you did there? Well, the first thing I did was a variety night. That's after I saw that play, then I I knew this woman who was a part of WOW and she was like, oh, we have variety nights. Come to a variety night. I had never done anything like that. The variety nights really, as it turned out, were like... 
people just standing up and talking about their vacation they just took, or there was a woman who could whistle classical musical th through her nose, or they were just, or, you know, somebody would like jump rope and do poetry. I mean, it was really, but I came from this undergraduate theater background. At that time, I had also, I had been a member of a touring company, I had done a national tour with, as an actor. So I had these, you know, these stories, these funny anecdotes that I had honed for years, mostly about my family. And then I had this Victorian variety song that I sang as an audition called I Saw Stars. And in this song, which was kind of funny, I would do a tap dance. There was like a little tap break in it. So I, for the variety night, I told these two stories and I sang this song. And then it was at Wow at that time was in a little storefront on East 11th Street, right by where Vineros is. And the stage was like five by five and it was in a tenement. So the, it was the storefront of the tenement. So there was the storefront door and then there was, you could go out the back door into the hallway of the tenement next to you. So I went out the hall, I finished, I went out that back door and then I was out on the street. And then somebody said, they're still clapping. You have to do more. And I was like, I don't, I don't have any more. I never did that before. And then they were like, do you want to do your own show? And I was like, okay. Yes. Scared, Scared, totally, totally. But I thought, yes, yes. And then I had no idea how to write a show. So I just sat in my apartment and ate a lot of Entenmann's cookies, many boxes of Entenmann's cookies. And then when it was, and that went on for weeks. And then, and I, there were two shows at 11 o'clock at night. I made a list of all these anecdotes that I'd honed. And I rehearsed a couple of songs with this... Eric Rockwell, who's actually also a composer. And then I, the show that was happening like at eight o'clock was called Hiroshima Beach Party. And the set was sand. So the little stage was covered with sand and I swept the sand to the side. And then on the, and the piano, because there was no room on the stage, the piano was in the house. And so I taped my list of stories and songs to the upstage side, side of the piano. And then I told these stories and I sang these songs. And it was like, magic it was so amazing and it went really well and and you know people just I mean it was like people who my friends and then people who I worked with on my temp jobs and whatever they came so and it was small space so it was pretty full but people kept coming in off the street as I was performing you know it filled up and it was just like magic and I was like wow I am so talented I don't really need to do any I just stand on stage and everything that drops out of my mouth is like magic and then they asked me if I wanted to do a show like another show and I did and then that didn't go as well and then it was like, you know, seven months later or something. And then I was like, oh, I have, there's some, something happened there, something I did instinctively that didn't happen here. And there were a lot of little performance spaces. And so I just went from performance space to performance space. What was the thing that was missing? Did you ever put your finger on Yeah. I mean, I think it, like anybody who performs comedy, you can't try to be funny. You have to, you have to learn how to come at it from underneath. I was trying to repeat what had been successful and you can't, it, do, it just doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't control it and you can't indicate to the audience how you want them to respond. You have to offer, you have to do a thing and let them do what they're going to do. Can we go back to the Entenmann's cookies for a second? Absolutely. Well, chocolate shit, no. So you said you had never written a show before. No, and then I didn't write anything then. I didn't write anything for years. I improvised on stage. I improvised on stage and then I would tape I would do a lot of like little short performances and I would ta you know, tape them so that as things occurred to me in the moment, I would have an idea of what I was going to say. And then those stories got built by performing them. A and then I would sort of gather material together and, and ended up doing, at some point, Mar Mark Russell, who was at PS122 then, said, do you want to do a show here? So I would do a full-length show. I do a full-length show at WOW or full-length show. 
think if I did a Foley show at La Mama, I think it was most, or Dixon Place, I did shows at Dixon Place, but it was really between WOW and, and, and Mark Russell offering me time to do whole shows that I would sort of put together these, you know, shows where I told stories and sang songs and I often had choruses of backup singers and, and I was really, really interested in, in being consistently funny and also the nature of that kind of a connection with an audience that is simultaneously seems spontaneous, but is something, it is spontaneous, but it is also planned and it is also not the same as you and me talking. It's something else. It's, it's lifted into a different kind of engagement. And I was really, really, really interested for a number of years in learning how to master that engagement, which, which, in which you have control over the situation, but you are, so you're, you're moving in a pre, a, a direction that you have planned out, but you have got to also be porous. You have got, you've got to be in actual conversation, actual interaction with these people in this room at this time. So if someone gets up and walks out, if, if there's a siren outside, if something else happens, you've got to somehow make, you've got to incorporate that into, you can't just close down and say, I'm going to keep going in this direction. You want to keep going in that direction, but you need to be permeable also. And you're lifting people into a world that you are making with them, which means that you you have to somehow, whatever comes into that room needs to be incorporated into the thing that you're making together. Otherwise, it's, otherwise you're not really doing the thing. And that kind of mastery... I remember like watching Betty Davis on a talk show and feeling, looking at her authority sitting in that chair. You know, it's a kind of, pre that's, it's what they call stage presence. And the only way you learn it is by being in on stage for hours and hours and hours and hours. And not only in successful shows. I mean, it's really interesting. Sometimes I see on stage actors who have become famous because they have been fantastic in really successful shows. And then you see them at a benefit or something like that. And they don't actually have the chops to bring people toward them if those people didn't come in wanting to be on the ride with them. You know, that's a different kind of chops that you learn over time. Your process now, how related is your process about writing now to your process in that first time when you had the intimate cookies? Do you still <laughs> eat cookies? Things? Yes. yes you still <laughs> the cookies are a constant. Do you still tape things? Because you are one of those very interesting writer, performers, you do both. Obviously, you're very comfortable doing both and very good at both. Do you? Is there a performance element to your writing? No, not so much. Well, I would say there is and that I can hear when things are out loud much better than I can hear something on the page. So I don't, I develop things on paper now. I certainly don't develop by improving things in front of an audience. I don't have the Oh my God, I'm too old for that. <laughs> I just don't, uh, it just really takes a lot. It's amazing we get more scared about those things or more like a little when you get older. Like well, you know, I think the thing is that it takes a kind of focus. It, it, it is a gathering of energy that is very intense. And I remember sort of in my, you know, the height of my powers, you know, when I was doing say 2.5 minute ride or something, I remember right before I would go on stage, I don't know if you remember in the, like the Ed Sullivan show, you know, and there were all those sort of old vaudeville acts. And every once in a while, there was somebody who used to, like, eat an entire car, like, piece by piece. And I would often have this feeling before I went on stage for a 2.5-minute ride, like I was about to have to eat an entire car. To, in fact, gather and, and, and be a conduit. Use your body and your focus and your attention and everything to 
to gather and then be a conduit for the attention of an audience, to bring them together into a community of, of attention, and then to lift them and hold them. It just ta- it takes a lot. And I think I, I realized at some point that I had an amazing focus. I, I was capable of amazing focused attention for approximately an hour and 20 minutes. And then it would drop off because that was the length of a show. So it's just that I, I, and it's like walking a tightrope, you know, when you lift people like that, I mean, it's the reason, I mean, I haven't seen the play that goes wrong, but I heard about it and I'm, it's only that I just was out of town all last year that I didn't see it. But that thing, I mean, I think I, I am guessing that the success of that play is that it plays on the thing that people love more than anything in the theater, which is that when things go wrong in the theater, you can feel what theater is about. You can feel what you have invested in it. And the reason it's so potent is that for whenever that thing happens, we it's a, it's a contract of trust. We are going to go together into this place of collective imagination. And there's something humiliating. I mean, theater is ultimately nerdy in that way because it because there's so much vulnerability in it. There's so much vulnerability in it. So the horrifying thing about dropping it is that it's, that's the thing. You've made people so vulnerable and then you have dropped them. So that's why it's, that's the nerve that it takes that I, that, that is harder for me to come by now to do that. When you were working downtown and even when you're doing 2.5 minute ride and even well to some extent, did you ever imagine that you would one day be a Broadway writer, performer that, that especially after being told that oh you, you'll you'll never do anything you're not meant to be on the stage because you're different than everyone else did you ever think you would yourself no, would translate de- to a definitely Broadway not audience? definitely not I think I didn't think it because it wasn't a possibility when I was starting out I mean it was not a possibility also when I was nominated for well and the category was best actress there was. Like that whole season, first of all, I was so lucky because the other nominees, I mean, it was absurd. The other nominees were Cynthia Nixon, who won the Tony that year, Lynn Redgrave, Kate Burton, and Judy Kay. And they were the best. I mean, I remember at one of the events, Kate Hudson, who's just the greatest, saying to me, we're so lucky that we're all over 40 and we all know what this is and what it isn't. Lynn Redgrave opened a show at the West Side Theater at that time and invited us all to come to opening. I mean, it was just the loveliest. At the Tonys, I had to go to the bathroom. I didn't realize I had needed some credential to go backstage. And Kate Burton waited with me in the long line so that I wouldn't have to stand there by myself. And that was right after Lee Silverman and I had been in our seats and we had stood up for something in one of the breaks. And then we were sitting back down and one of the bouncers thought that we were seat fillers and yelled at us, get back in your seats. <laughs> and he was like, she's a nominee. <laughs> anyway, so no, I didn't imagine, I didn't imagine any of those things, no. What was it like when you found out you were going uptown? Well, oh, what I was going to say about being nominated for Best Actress is that I realized, I, like that whole season, I walked around with this like little like chuckle. Like it was like every moment, if somebody talked to me, I was like, Ugh. because I thought, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then at some point, I realized that my everything that I had done, everything that had sort of spurred me along, every k- kind of background shaping that I had done unconsciously of my career had happened because of the fact that I knew for certain that 
the, I mean, the bedrock thing I knew was that I would never, <laughs> ever be nominated for a Tony for Best Actress. That was the, like one or two things I know for sure. That I knew for sure. So it was just kind of hilarious. Do you think that helped, though, in some crazy way? Like you don't like talk about not thinking about the thing that you would, of course, love to have happen, which did happen. Well, what's helped and what continues to help is that because of being at the Wild Cafe when I was, where the greatest work was being done, work that changed my life, work that when I look at it again in retrospect, it is absolutely, you know, sometimes you think something is so great that you go back and you're like, hmm, it's absolutely as amazing as I thought it was then. Nobody was paying any attention with the exception of a couple of women from The Voice. Nobody wrote about us. And then academics, women academics started to write about the work there, but nobody else. When, so reviewers didn't write about us when at that time hbo and showtime were starting to come down and find people and bring them up Baldwin gray eric bogosian dennis leary all kinds of people were getting lifted out of that world nobody could see us then at some point there started to be histories of the performance scene in east village until very recently we were in none of them and that was enraging in a way still enraging but it for me had this other effect which was there was no reason to be there except to that what was happening in that place was electric. It was the making of culture. It was us delighting ourselves by, there were no images of us or what we were like, and we were making them. And they were hilarious, and they were sexy, and they were inventive, and they were done. And, and so I, re I remember this feeling of just like, oh, th this, is, this is alive. Wendell Pierce talks about a living culture and how... Uh, as opposed to a commercial culture, that when, when culture is alive, it's how you celebrate, you, it's, it's how you mourn your losses and you celebrate your successes. It is interwoven into your daily life. It's a, it's a means of daily expression. And that's what the Wow Cafe was like for us. We lived there. We Everything we did, we were putting on stage. We were putting on st things on stage. They didn't cost any money because we didn't have any money. And, and we were just like... Wouldn't it be interesting if we did this? Let's do this. Let's do this. That was the most valuable thing that could possibly happen to me because I don't have any re... It, of course, it's amazing to have made my living for the past several decade or so in the theater. That is very lucky. But I am not confused about... I don't confuse making my living in the theater with my legitimate right and my ability to make theater. I know that those two things, it's lucky when they go together... And, and they, they can occur separately with no problem at all in terms of making the, the work. And that is really lucky because it means that I can do things on my own terms and I can walk away from projects I don't want to do. And in negotiations, I, I mean, the other thing is I learned to be a collaborator. It's not like I, I don't think that I'm a, I, I mean, I know that I'm a really good collaborator, but I don't have trouble I don't, you know, I often say to students, like, who's your, who is your primary relationship with in the theater? And they, and they often will start to talk about artistic directors. That's who they're trying to forge relationships with. And I say, your, your relationship is with an audience and the artistic director is the, the guy you've got to get through. Sometimes the woman you've got to get through to get to that audience. You talk about collaboration. So let's talk about how you made the transition from doing these downtown, from variety shows downtown to 2.5 Minute Ride to, well, 
to then Fun Home, which all of a sudden, it's a musical, mm -hmm. first of all, right? You would have some musical experience, but now you're collaborating with folks. What were what were those first sessions like for you? How right. You well, I was collaborating, you know, I worked for many years at WOW. I made shows with the theater company, the Five Lesbian Brothers. So we wrote, the five of us wrote collaboratively. So I feel like I know, I really learned a lot about something that many people don't get to learn, which is how you can actually collaborate with people and which means listening to them and being open to them and also pushing, you know, that there can be rigor in collaboration, how you can be kind, how you can be in humane relationship with somebody else and also rigorous. I think for, I could learn to be, sit with disagreement and how you get past that and how you get through it and, and, the experience of believing for sure that you know what the answer is and then either being able to convince people that's right or finding out that in fact there was a better answer that you couldn't hear because you were only thinking about your own answer or what generally happens which is together finding a third way any specific examples of fun home where there was a disagreement and you were persuaded like oh wait i'm i should look at this a little different anything changed? yeah i mean a lot i mean i'd say that you know janine is also a, just a, a world-class collaborator. And I think she and I knew that about each other. And then Sam Gold was too. And so I think the ethos of that collaboration, which was so great, I think we all knew how to say, I don't understand what you're saying, but let's take a look. That was the ethos. And, and, and ultimately we all had the same, I think the thing about collaboration too, is you realize you can't collaborate with everybody because you have to ultimately have the same aesthetic values at the end. So you all ultimately are going to have to agree that the solution, you have to be able to agree on a solution to a problem. I mean, the story about that isn't actually about those collaborators, but Oscar Eustace was like, I mean, there were some notes that he gave me that I was absolutely opposed to, and I was correct about those things. But there was one, that, and I have to say one great thing about Oscar was that he really just let me just like pound on him you know like he would say so and so and i remember at one point i was like oscar i'm gonna i, th I think i threatened to hit him i didn't really it was a rhetorical device but i thought even so that he was just like whatever but he there was a song that was in the lab that he said needed to be cut and i was enraged by this note i was enraged i was like there it's obviously ridiculous he's obviously not he can't see the problems that we're working with he doesn't know what he's talking about i railed on about it for a long time i was so angry that he would say that and so for the lab we didn't cut it i was just like that is the most absurd thing i've ever heard and then we walked we finished the lab we took a month or so off and then i went back to the work started looking at it again to to get ready to do whatever the next pass was and uh, so you can see what's coming i looked at it and i was like oh Man, oh, fuck. I called Janine and I was like, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I can't believe it, but Oscar's right. That song has to go. I can't believe it. So, like that. When you first started working on that show, were you like, again, was it like, this thing's never going to go to Broadway with this subject matter? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Thing? Yeah. Were you even, did, I don't even know the story of, of how you came on board with it. Did you, were you immediately like, oh, yes, I must do this story? Or were you like, do I really want to invest my time in something? No, I had a feeling, you know, I had a feeling about that work. I didn't know anything about musicals, so I could have as easily been wrong. But I think the thing that I felt about it, I mean, really, I mean, I've thought many other things since then. I've been, Janine, let's make a musical out of this. And she's like, no. But I do think that one thing that I think I understand now is that 
there has to be something on musicals are interested in what can't be articulated and they're they they need yearning they're about yearning and if everything is if there's no if there's no human mystery in them if there's nothing that just can't be articulated that i mean that's what music does it expresses that which cannot be articulated and fun home is all about that it's all about i mean that's the nature of that story i also knew that i understood something about that book that I felt that most people would not be able to see. I understood its essayistic nature, and I knew that what she was doing, that it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a story about things that happened to a family, that it was an essayistic consideration of the narratives that this family had formed about itself. So I felt like I could recognize that that's what it was, because I had been similarly interested in those kind of narratives, and I knew that I knew something about dramatizing that kind of an essayistic questioning of the nature of family narratives, because I had done that with 2.5 Minute Ride. I didn't, so I also knew how difficult it was. I mean, the same with Well. Well is a similar version of that. Also, that the, that the story, in some sense, was about individuating from your family, which was also the story that I t- have told again and again. That's been my central story that I've told a lot. I also knew that that was a very difficult form. I struggled with it for five years with 2.5 Minute Ride. I struggled with it for five years with Well. I knew it was going to be tough. I knew that there had to be a character of adult Allison and that people were going to assume she was a narrator and she couldn't be a narrator. She had to be a character. As with, certainly with Well, it wasn't, I I felt that that was, if you were going to, if you were going to adapt the book, that was what had to happen. Whether it, I could figure out how to do it successfully. I didn't. I didn't know. I wasn't sure. Biggest and, surprise you had when you got to Broadway with the show that you didn't expect? Like, oh, this is what being a Broadway author is like of a big musical. Well, yeah. I mean, going with a musical was certainly different than than going with well. Yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's fun. It's fancy. It's fun. Yeah, I mean the the particular kind of fandom that there is for musicals is really touching to me especially for that show i imagine you got a lot of very i mean we definitely did but every show has that every show has that and i what i mean i get told a lot because of the nature of fun home i hate musicals but I like Fun Home. And I always think, nobody hates a musical. That's just a lot. Nobody hates a musical. The fact is, we love musicals so much. I believe they're the highest They're the highest American art form. We love them so much that we feel horribly betrayed when they're bad. That's what I think. We do get very angry when they're bad. Yeah, because what they have the potential to do is, is, is ravishing. And, and nothing else can do it. Do you get writer's block? Oh, I don't think I get writer's block. I'm a, I, it's not, I mean, writing is extremely, I'm not a natural writer. I'm not a natural dramatist. So I just have to work and work and work and work and work and do drafts and draft and draft after draft after draft. If you're not a natural dramatist, what, what do you call yourself? I love the form more than anything. So I don't know. I'm dogged. I'm dogged. What I think is that I have, I have good discernment. I have good discernment. And that means that, I mean, somebody like, for instance, Stephen Edley Geergis, that's a natural dramatist. You know what I mean? There's nothing, he just, I'm trying to think of, um, so it's, it's not actually that common. 
but there are people who just write, certainly who write in metaphor very naturally, but who write interactions between people that are doing the thing that plays do, as opposed to approaching it more novelistically or more cinematically or something. So I guess I, I don't do it naturally, but I, I think I can feel when it's not there and I can feel when it is there. So I just keep churning out draft after draft after draft. And then I'll be like, that seems better. And then I hang on to that. And then that seems better. And I just stay at it. So you were able to confront your own fears as well as confront people telling you like, hey, there's probably not a place for you in this thing we call the theater which is incredible, and you're such a role model for so many other women out there that, as we all know, they're not enough of in, well, just about every position in the right. theater. But especially, they're available. Women are available. Especially writers. What can we do? What, give us one action item, one thing we could all do right now to encourage more women to pick up a pen, to offer them more opportunities, whatever it is. There are plenty of women writers. There's no shortage of women writers. There's no shortage of writers of color. There's just not. There's not. The difference, it, I mean, number one, diversity, gender, and racial and ethnic diversity have to happen from top to bottom. It means that we have to make those choices. We have, for, for white people, so speaking as a white person, we have to, no, and I, and I can see this happening with men around the gender issue. It will feel different. It will, when there is parity, when there is a balanced diversity, it will feel different than it does now. As someone said, uh, I heard someone say, if you have had privilege, then equality feels like oppression. So we have to be aware that it will feel different. And we have to make room for people to move up. The other thing I think that is the most important thing is that... You know, I interviewed James Lapine for the Dramatist Guild Legacy Project. I'm a huge admirer. It was an amazing interview. And he made this comment, which I don't take any issue with, but it was really stuck with me. But he was talking about his first plays. And he said, well, you know, first couple of plays that you do you get the benefit of the doubt. And I remember just feeling, being like, what? And I, I was like, oh, oh, wow. Yes. No, I don't know that. That doesn't happen to women. That doesn't happen to people of color. How that translates into other things is that white male playwrights, we take chance every time, every time somebody chooses a play, they're making a leap of faith every single time. And it's very unconscious, these different sets of assumptions. People look at a white male playwright and they think this might be interesting. And this I'm speaking very generally, right? That could be interesting. I'm going to give that guy a chance. But with women and people of color, they're like, I don't know. Let's see. Once I see that they can do the work, men are lifted on the basis of their potential and women of people of color on the basis of their accomplishments. If we're aware of that and say the, the chances that this leap of faith will pay out are equally distributed. Success and failure, equally distributed. That will be helpful. But there's no shortage of writers out there, none. And if, what I hear somebody say, if you lose your keys... You don't say, well, I've lost my keys. I guess I'll never drive my car again. You keep looking till you find your keys. If we feel like we can't find women and people of color to fill any position, it's only because we're not looking far enough. Because in fact, there is a, there's actually an untapped wealth of extremely talented people across the board who are not, are not being brought in. 
advice to young women playwrights out there or young playwrights in general that are trying to break into this business right now that may be finding themselves banging their heads against the wall and can't get through? I mean, I don't know. I don't think I, I, w- I was just on this panel with Monet Hurst Mendoza and Patricia Ione Lloyd, and they were both enormously smart and wise about their paths. I don't, I don't really, I think that there are people who are doing a lot of smart things and don't really need that advice. I think people are, are working very hard and they're creating their own opportunities and they're doing all the things that I did. I, I don't, I was listening to this appreciation of Stephen Hawking last night and uh, this guy was saying he was such an inspiration to disabled people and because he really believed in himself and he just didn't let himself be stopped. And I, that might very well be true, but I thought that's disabled people face all kinds, all kinds of obstacles that have nothing to do with how much they believe in themselves, you know? So I think people always make their way. They always do. With the arts, it's hard for everybody. You have to, I mean, I just kept going because I couldn't stop. And there are always people who keep going because they can't stop. And, and so that also means that there's lots of interesting work out there already that is not visible to you and me sitting here, but it's, it's right there and it's happening. So. My last question, which is my genie question, and I have a feeling I know what, how you're going to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you uh-huh. and is going sing to sing some move. snappy songs. Yeah, you gets know, me do moving a, around. Do a show tune or two, <laughs> and grant you one wish. What's the one thing about Broadway or the theater that drives you so crazy, that gets you angry, frustrated, that wants you to flip this table over? that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant. That's the way it always has been. The great British series. Oh, I always forget the name of it. You know, that TV series from, no, it's not British, it's Canadian. with the, the new Burbage Theater. Slings and Arrows, Slings and Arrows is about that tension. That will always be the case. But I would love for, I'd love to see more places, more, more resources go directly to artists to make their work happen. Very good answer. I wish that one too. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Don't forget, if you're in New York City and looking for a show to see on Broadway, check out Once in this Island, Kinky Boots, or The Play That Goes Wrong. Those are all shows that I'm producing right now, and we'd love to have you. See you there. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.